I will be reading Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 16 and 20 to 24. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for the sheep and look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of the clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all, all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be the grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring them back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you shove with flank and, sh- and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with, all the hor- with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will now be reading Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne and in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of the brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment by the righteous of eternal life. Thank you, Simon, for the invitation to come and share in worship here. You and I shared in worship so many times in South Wales. It was great to have a colleague like Simon who used to turn up about the same time as I did, about 10 past seven in the morning, and so we could actually sort the whole of the college and the other staff out before they arrived. But the great thing about Simon and the thing that really attracted me to him was the fact that uh, he, he took the book of Revelation which I'm sure you must have heard about. <laughs> but he made it alive for 2003 or four or wherever it was. And that's what's important. And that's what really I feel is so important about being church, about preaching, about teaching, is that it is relevant, that it engages with where we are in the time where we are. And I'm sure that Simon has brought this to you while he's been the minister here. Well, the two readings we heard are the lectionary readings um, for today. If I was attending the parish church where we now attend in a little village north of Bedford, these are the passages we would be looking at. I like the lectionary because it constrains you to actually look at what actually God might be saying through these passages on this particular day. And so we're going to look at evangelism and social concern. Some years ago, I was asked to conduct the funeral of the former matron of our local hospital. It was a hospital that housed mainly geriatric patients. Although not a member of any church, this lady apparently had been brought up as a Baptist. Well, at least she'd attended the Sunday school once or twice in the local Baptist church. But as I talked to the bereaved, a story unfolded of a spinster who'd given all her love, all her energy and compassion for those for whom she cared. The frail, the sick, the incontinent, the disabled, often bad-tempered and confused elderly patients of the cottage hospital. I could get no clear picture of her faith, but the words of Jesus that we have just read seemed most appropriate to express the reality of her life. And if this is the judgment of God... I did, however, go on, as was my normal practice at funerals, to speak about the eternal hope that we have through the cross and resurrection of Christ. And whatever eternity held for that lady, this was the gospel, at least for the bereaved. But I was challenged by her life and challenged by the reading that I chose at the funeral. Now, this passage may look dangerously like justification by works, the impression that if we serve the poor, we are necessarily serving Christ in them. But the emphasis is our relationship to the king and to the kingdom. As Luke would say, it's the kingdom of God is in our midst. It's, it's where we are. We are kingdom people if we have shared our lives with Christ. And it's on this judgment, 
It's on this decision that judgment is going to be based, our relationship to the king and to the kingdom. A gospel that doesn't show itself in the reality of Christ-like living is actually no gospel at all. And this comes from our relationship with Christ. As James puts it in his letter to the church, right belief without right action is like a body without the spirit. It's lifeless. The heart of Christianity is our relationship with Jesus which shows itself in loving, sacrificial care for others and in particular for the poor and the needy. This is the heart, of course, of much of your own church's program. Your website states, we are a Baptist church in the heart of London's West End and we seek to live out the example of Jesus Christ for the good of our city and the wider world. We believe that every person is valued by God and can make a contribution to the life of their community. Well, lots of churches have mission statements, but what's much more important here is that this is what you actually do. Open doors, welcoming visitors throughout the week. Tuesdays at Bloom as a social gathering for the active retired which I understand, the active retired, by the way, just in case you didn't know, are those between 75 and 85. Yes, 70 is the new 50. Sunday lunch with places for the vulnerable and the homeless. The evening centre in partnership with the Simon community, providing food and chat for rushed sleepers. And the winter night shelter for the homeless. And this is particularly I think valuable, particularly on a day like today as I walked here from St Pancras and saw those who were huddled up in sleeping bags in doorways. We are all accountable for the way in which we live our lives and all will be judged. There will be no excuses. It will be perfectly fair and the division that takes place will, I suspect, present us with some surprises. So the key word in the title that I've taken, evangelism and social concern, is the word in the middle, and. Scripture will not allow us to separate these words in our Christian discipleship. So let's first of all think about the call of Christ. The passage elaborates the Advent question of watching and being ready for the coming of Christ. It runs right the way through Matthew 24 and 25. And next Sunday is Advent Sunday as we are preparing and watching, uh, remembering the coming of Christ as a baby, looking forward to the coming of Christ in glory. And the call is to live a life of love. As Matthew has said a little bit earlier, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. We deny self, we take up the life of cross-shaped, sacrificial love, and we follow Jesus. It's to be a life of righteousness. Jesus has already said that that righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, who did live as righteous a life as they could in obeying the law. It's a righteousness that is not deeds, it's not merely words, it's got to be deeds as well. 
As Matthew told in the story of the, uh, the two house builders, there are two sorts uh, of, of life. There is listening and there's listening and doing. It's like building on sand or building on rock. If you just listen and don't do anything about it, you're building on very shaky foundations, says Jesus. But if you listen and then respond to what you have heard, then you will be building on rock. And in this passage, we're dealing with the finality of judgment. And the judgment also shows us these two kinds of life which are identified. There is knowing what God requires. And then there is knowing and doing what God requires. The clear echoes here of the teaching of God that comes through Ezekiel in our first reading. The activity of the strong sheep, the lack of care for the weak and the oppressed, the emphasis on God's care for the disadvantaged and the dispossessed, and his criticism of those who enjoy the riches of creation at the expense of others. Ezekiel was very clear in this prophecy. So the Lord is our shepherd. God will provide the perfect shepherd. He searches for the lost. He strengthens the weak. He binds up the injured. He gives rest and refreshment. And that, of course, is our call, that we are called to be that kind of shepherd, looking after the weak sheep. And so we move on from the call of Christ to see the way in which Christ identifies himself with the poor. Each human being is lovingly created in the image of God. Christ is the true shepherd of the sheep. He identifies with each person through his death on the cross. And as such, is to be found in every human being that we encounter in this world. So when we meet somebody or we bump into somebody in church, on the street, at work, we look at them and we don't start to criticize and judge. We simply say, this is somebody for whom Christ has died. Maybe we ought to ask the question, who did Jesus spend his time with? Well, he spent his time with lepers, the bereaved, the lonely the outcasts of society, the sinners and the worthless, the tax collectors, the collaborators. He was poor. He was an outcast. And he was crucified. But God raised him to the place that is higher than any other and gives him the name that is above every other name. Question is, who do we spend our time with? Well, I suppose... The well-off, people who have very few problems, the middle class, the well-dressed, the well-mannered, those who think like us, don't ask awkward questions about God or life or which way you voted in Brexit. I might ask you that. but uh... And Jesus said, if you love those who love you or are like you, are you any better than the tax collectors? Here the church congregation, though, is actively involved with the disadvantaged and those in need. And so for you in the congregation here, you've got many opportunities to be involved. 
Christ's identification with human beings, especially the poor and the needy and the persecuted, is implied by the words of Jesus. But also, when the risen Christ encounters Saul on the road to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? You are persecuting me in the people who you persecute. But here in our reading, in the words of Jesus, we go beyond Christians. We go beyond the church members. We go to the whole of the world, all the poor. But even when identified with the poor, Jesus remains their Lord and encounters them as their judge. You'll be judged on the way in which you have treated the poor and the needy. As the South American liberation theologian Gustavo Gutierrez says, the poor must also opt for the poor. That's certainly something that I saw in Brazil when I was in a very poor barrio in in Campo Grande in the west of Brazil, where I was in a very poor Baptist church who had very little food of their own, but they used to share their food with the, the poorer still within their community. They used to go to their cupboard and take the last bag of rice and the last bag of beans and there'd be nothing else in the cupboard, just those. And they would take them down to the church and there they would share with the poor members of their community. That was actually quite different from my experience uh, in El Salvador some 10 years later when two men who were poor held two missionaries and myself up at knife point and proceeding to remove all our valuables. You see, the poor must also opt for the poor. Now, we're not dealing with something mysterious here. We're not dealing with something merely spiritual in the line where the line between God and human beings is somehow blurred. We're not dealing with the way in which the Stoics might have seen it, that, that God was identified with everybody. But rather, we're looking here at the act of charity, the act of love and care for a particular individual who might not be appealing, who might not be sympathetic. In fact, any one of these, says Jesus. So what will Jesus expect us to be doing when he returns? Following his example what he will look for. Real caring love, putting the needs of others before our own. Real caring love, not merely words. Caring for creation, caring for the peoples of the world. And as we approach this Advent season, focused on the coming of Christ, past and future, the former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, challenges us to think of the coming of Christ in the present. And he says, we need to live as if Christ has already returned. The kingdom in our midst. Living resurrection life now. Jesus didn't preach at the poor and the oppressed. He didn't tell them what he was going to do for them. He didn't impose himself on them. Rather, he simply asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? Evangelism and social concern. Our question is, what do you want me to do for you? And then let's look at 
the judgment of Christ. Because this passage seems to be all about judgment. Of course, it's not really judgment. Because our destiny will have already been decided when we come face to face with the risen Christ for the last time. He's already met us many times in the poor and the needy, the hungry and the homeless and the oppressed. As Michael Green says, it'll not do for Christians to sing hymns or the latest spring harvest or new wine choruses and keep themselves pure in the time between the first advent and the return of Christ. In in a needy world, we must be known for our love and for our service, in our care for those with whom Jesus identified. Or to quote Steve Chalk, speaking at Spring Harvest a few years ago about the latest manifestation of the Spirit, he said, Christianity is not about the way we fall over. It's what we do when we get up again. It's not about enthusiasm in our worship, but the nature of our lives lived as disciples of Christ. And the righteous in this passage have got no consciousness of having helped the poor. It's it's not a a matter of doing good deeds to receive our heavenly reward. I once took a a, a nurse uh, whose car had broken down when I was in Oxford, and I, I took her to the hospital where she was on the night shift. And she said to me in the car, she said, Oh, she said, I always do the night shift. It's every time I come home after the night shift, I know that's another jewel in my heavenly crown. No, it doesn't work that way. Who we are and the way we conduct our lives will demonstrate to whom we belong. Every act of love has its source in God. The person who is vindicated by God is the one who knows no good that they have done. No good works that they can claim to their credit. It's only the response of the judge that that reveals to them that they have encountered him in the unprepossessing person, exposed to danger, oppressed at their wit's end in all the many insignificant people that they can no longer remember. This surely is a challenge for the way in which we care for others. Judgment is for all people, but it's not to be seen as a reward or a punishment. The righteous person lives this way without calculating a reward. It's the essence of being in Christ. It's the essence of our Christian discipleship. My son Richard works for Citizens Cymru and he also works for Citizens UK. One notable organizing highlight of his work so far has been supporting and helping the Gurnos Zebras. Now there aren't any zebras in Gurnos in Merthyr Tydfil. No, it's Zebra Crossings. A campaign in 2015 was there to improve the safety of young people in Merthyr on their way to school and on their way to the youth club. And so they got together, the schools and the churches and the community groups, 
in helping those young people to petition the local authority and a zebra crossing was placed there. Richard is an active member of Salem uh, Baptist Church in Tonteg, which engages as a church in community, organizing with Citizens Cymru, supporting local refugee groups in the resettlement of Syrian refugees. They've resettled seven families in their locality. Richard has got a strong commitment to enabling people to develop skills to experience uh, themselves as community leaders and enabling local organizations to work together with others to bring about the transformation of communities. This is what Citizens UK is all about. And as a congregation here, you have opportunities to work for social transformation with West London citizens. There's an important work to do here in, in areas such as the real living wage. Campaigning, of course, for the living wage began not far from here with local groups in East London who recognized that poor wages were a major factor affecting the well-being of families. London citizens, like Citizens Cymru, are also involved in welcoming refugees and addressing issues of affordable housing and the safety of young people traveling to and from school. Maybe there may be a need for Bloomsbury zebras. Who knows? It is a place where the church can work together with other faith groups, with schools, and with the local authorities. So when it comes to evangelism and social action, Matthew presents us with two limits. First of all, he tells us it's all down to God's grace. Just a couple of chapters earlier, where... The vineyard owner says, don't I have the right to do with my money what I want? Who gives work a whole day's wages to the person who has only worked for an hour. But then he also tells us, whatever you did for one of the least of these sisters and brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Sadly, if I go back to South America and Central America, many missionaries from North America go there and they preach to the poor, oppressed peoples, telling them that they have to accept their lot and place their lives in God's hands and await a better eternity. There seems to be a blindness there that fails to see the responsibility of rich Christians for the oppression of the poor. There seems to be no recognition of the question of what eternity might await the rich. If the poor can expect a blessed eternity, what eternity faces the rich, either them in North America or us here? Evangelism without social concern, without a prophetic voice, is like faith without works. It's an impoverished gospel. It lacks a wholeness. It's dead. We must learn of Christ challenging us through the poor, not only in the developing world, but also in those faces that we meet, desperate faces on the streets where we live. Jesus holds up to us the example of practical Calvary love in his teaching. This is the hallmark 
of our discipleship. Here is the uncomfortable test of our faith. How have I responded to the poor, to the sick, to the naked, to the hungry, to the prisoner? We cannot have a Christ-like evangelism without a Christ-like social concern. I leave you with the challenge that was given to me by a street pastor in Cardiff who said, remember, you may be the only Bible that most people will ever read. May we be good news to the people we meet. As a way into our prayers for the world, I'd like to share with you a poem that I wrote a couple of years ago. Stop the world, said the king. I'm getting confused. Let's take five, simmer down and think. I'm trying to decide, and it just isn't clear, on the difference between goats and sheep. I know, cried a voice, I think it's to do with the people you meet and the things that you do. If you're kind to the poor and give food from your table and care where you're able, I'm pretty sure you are a sheep. Hark at him bleating on, came a second response. He's full of his own self-importance. I'm afraid it's more complex than that. It's not what you do to the poor that decides. It's the attitude with which you do it. A sheep must be holy and humble, and so if you're anything else, you're a goat. Well, that's just woolly thinking, the first voice replied. If anyone's goatish, it's you. It's all very well being holy and such, but that doesn't get anyone fed. Said the goat to the sheep, I think we've resolved it. The sheep looks like me and the goat looks like you. I see it the same, came the answer right back. A you looks like me, not like you. Hang on, said the king. I'm still no more clear. Are you both sure and certain you're sheep? Why, yes, cried two voices, both speaking as one. We know that we're sheep and we're sure it must be, for we know that they all must be goats. So let me be clear, said the king with a sigh. You each want the other condemned. Well, it's never so clear and I'm never so sure and there's something that still gets my goat. You've heard of the herd, the tribe and the nation, the people who act just like you. Well, the herd is a fable we're able to tell just to justify me and my own. If you think you're all sheep and that others are goats, you divide up the world very wrong. Then the king turned away and went on his way and restarted the world once again. But after a minute, he paused in his stride and looked over his shoulder to see who was following on. Let's pray. Great God of all the earth, we recognize with sorrow and repentance in our hearts that all too easily we, your created people, rush to the judgment of others. We divide humanity one from another, condemning some and vindicating others and always placing ourselves on the side of the righteous. 
We isolate those who do not look, live or love like we do. And we put them apart, telling ourselves that we're right because they are wrong. But we hear from your word that in this we bring judgment on ourselves every bit as much as we would heap judgment on those we would condemn. Forgive us, dear Lord. May we instead learn to see others as you see them rather than as we have learned to see them. May we be given the insight of your spirit to see through difference to discover the common humanity that underlies all our interactions, all our relationships. And so we pray today for a world that seems intent on tearing itself apart. We look around us at your world and we see so much strife, division, war, suffering and pain. We see people rushing to judgment of the other and calling down the fires of hell on those who are not like them. From the breakup of countries and unions, to the hatred of one religious group for another, to the scapegoating of the weak and the vulnerable at every level of our society, we see humans intent on dividing one from another in the interests of naming some as right and some as wrong. So we pray today for the victims of the bombing of the Sufi mosque in Egypt. We hold before you all those who will live the rest of their lives with the pain and horror of that day. We pray for those who will have been turned from peace to violence by the horror visited upon them as they gathered in peaceful worship. We pray for those who now have the responsibility of working out how to respond. And we think particularly of the Egyptian authorities who face pressure to rush to swift retaliation. We pray also for those who will work at great cost to themselves to build bridges between the divergent streams of Islam. And we pray also for those who similarly build bridges between Islam and Christianity, both in Egypt and around the world. We recognise that so much of the violence that we face in our time comes from people who claim to be acting in obedience to divine command. And we ask that people of violent faith will hear the still small voice of calm in the midst of their rush to righteous condemnation of the other. We pray for the persecuted church and for any who face a martyr's death. May peace and justice prevail as your kingdom comes on earth as in heaven. We pray for victims of racism in our city of London, for those who are marginalised, bullied and attacked because of their ethnicity. We pray for asylum seekers, refugees and all those who are denied the possibility of fullness of life because of who they are. May we as your people in this city be catalysts of inclusion as we live out our conviction that all people are created in your image. Help us to set aside whatever privilege we have inherited 
and to be willing to meet the other as equal, whoever they may be. We pray for those who find themselves victimised or excluded because of their minority sexuality. We pray especially for those who have been isolated from communities of faith and whose experience of your body has been divisive rather than inclusive. We thank you for those who are willing to speak out and for those who are willing to reach out and embrace difference. We thank you for the 223 Network, for the Soho Gathering, for Affirm. We pray for the homeless and the vulnerable, for those whose economic and personal circumstances give rise to precarious living. And we name before you the work of our partners and our activities who seek together to bring support and progression to those who feel trapped by life. We think particularly of C4WS and the Winter Night Shelter, and of the Simon Community and our Evening Centre, and of the volunteers from this community who cook and serve and offer love and friendship. We pray also for the work of London citizens, and particularly West London citizens, and we hold our own involvement in that before you. And so we pray for this, our church, in all its glorious diversity. We ask that this place will be a beacon of light and love and inclusion, where we discover together that within the love of Christ, all other barriers that would divide are rendered irrelevant. We pray that all will be welcome here, regardless of ethnicity, social standing, gender or sexuality, and that we will have the courage to live the truth of your glorious gospel of unity in the midst of our divided city. Amen. <laughs>